It's spring 1724 in Southwark, London. Within a cell in Marshall Sea Prison, despite the fetid warmth of the bodies crowned in around him, curled up, shivering in a corner, is Sailor Lawrence Jones. The once powerful man is thin and sickly. Hugging his knees, he shakes violently as beads of cold sweat glisten across his pallid-looking skin. He's not a well man. In fact, very few of the inmates of this notorious prison are in good health. Most are debtors with little chance of buying their freedom. Many will die of starvation, sickness or disease due to their squalid surroundings. Other guests include those charged with sedition, treason, and of course, men like Thomas Jones, those accused of piracy. Though in Jones's case, the jailers doubt their prisoner will survive long enough to face justice. So it's a blessed relief when one day, a visitor arrives. An educated gentleman with the offer of a warm meal requests an audience with him. Quite literally. The visitor claims to be an author who is about to publish the first edition of his History of Piracy, titled A General History of the Pirates. It will prove an instant bestseller and he's keen to unearth content for the planned revised second edition. And he knows from experience that London's jails are never short of seafarers with a story to tell. Jones is only too happy to oblige. Slurping down warm soup and a glass of wine, he's delighted to give his version of the events that so recently befell him. He shares the sorry tale of his crewmates, who now also await trial for their crimes. The remaining crew of Captain Thomas Anstis, or as some would later claim, the crew of Bridstock Weaver. The visitor takes notes, scribbling down names and dates. Jones himself is an entertaining storyteller but this writer will still add his own literary embellishments later on. After all, his readers expect a certain style. A style made famous by Captain Charles Johnson. I'm Tom Morton, and welcome to Real Pirates, the show that dives deep into the true story behind the world's most notorious buccaneers. Join us as we set sail under the black flag, alongside such legendary figures as Blackbeard, Henry Morgan, Charles Vane, Anne Bonny, and Mary Reed. We'll reveal how these marauding mariners rose to dominate the seven seas, the terror tactics they employed to overpower their prey, and what life was really like aboard their ships. Their reputations have swollen to legendary proportions, making it hard to separate fact from fiction. Who were they? Terrorists or freedom fighters? 
cold-blooded killers or heroic underdogs? As it turns out, the truth is far stranger than fiction. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. In late 1722, tensions within Thomas Anstice's pirate fleet finally boil over. Commodore Anstice is voted out and replaced with senior gunner John Fenn. But the change in leadership is only a sticking plaster. Divisions within the crew run deep. Desperate criminals won't suffer fools gladly, nor accept failure for long. And after the loss of their flagship the Morning Star in a storm off the Cayman Islands, the whole demoralized company is now crammed on board the aging brigantine Good Fortune, a name that feels less appropriate by the day. Taking his opportunity in the turmoil, the Good Fortune's previous commander, Ridstock Weaver, makes his escape with a handful of other men. Their pirating days are over. They just hope they can outrun news of their crimes. Whatever the future holds, it seems Weaver's timing couldn't be better. Unbeknownst to Fenn, Anstis and company, despite keeping to Spanish waters, the British Royal Navy has dispatched a number of vessels to hunt them down. And hunt them, they will. In late November 1722, on the island of Roatan, according to Charles Johnson, Captain John Fenn and the pirates are caught at anchor by two Navy warships, HMS Hector and HMS Adventure. Johnson recounts an incredible escape story, where the Good Fortune manages to cut its cables and make use of the light wind to deploy her great oars, rowing away to safety all the while harried and bombarded by cannon fire. He writes, The pirates got out their oars and rowed for their lives, and thereby got clear of their enemy. 
but not all get away. As the adventure gives chase, HMS Hector lands a party of soldiers on the beach, where they apparently capture 40 of the pirates left stranded in the chaos. Dr. James Rankin is a historian and authority on pirates. So I think the 1720s is a period where the danger of running into a warship that actually outguns you is growing. And a naval battle is extremely dangerous. When you're on a ship being pounded with hundreds of round shots, anyone could die for any reason at any moment. It is just a, it's extremely arbitrary who lives and who dies in the middle of a, of a large ship-to-ship engagement. As we know about pirates, right, they want easy prey. They have a reputation for violence, but these are not necessarily people who are willing to sail into battle if they can help it. And so as that danger rises, right, it's another pressure that's welling up inside these crews. After the loss of the Morning Star, this latest disaster brings an end to the brief and ill-fated leadership of John Fenn. It all change again. Fenn is voted out, and Thomas Anstis is restored to command. In December 1722 and into early 1723, the pirates continue to cruise the Spanish main around Honduras, capturing several ships, including a large 24-gun ship which, incredibly, Anstis then gives back to his supposed rival John Fenn to captain. The rotation of command between Anstis, Fenn, and previously Weaver might reveal something of how power and the captaincy really works in the last years of the Golden Age. Far from a privileged position, it's looking more and more like a cursed crown. The fact that Anstis doesn't sort of seek revenge on Fenn or doesn't seem to have any hard feelings about it suggests at least that on some level he understood that potentially Fenn's election and his demotion was more about palliating the concerns of the crew than some underlying scheme by Fenn to unseat him. It does again sort of bring to the fore the ways in which being a pirate captain was not always sort of something that someone sought out or necessarily embodied as an act of personal power and charisma. The pirate fleet then sails south to the island of Tobago, to repair and refit. But despite a string of captures, by April 1723, it seems the crew cannot continue. The company will split for good. Captain Anstis will remain in command of the Good Fortune, committed to continue pirating at all costs. He's come too far to change course now. Captain Fenn and half the crew decide to quit pirating, at least for the time being. They will stay on Tobago with a view to retiring or finding a new life in the Americas. With Fenn's blessing, a third group are permitted to take the recently captured prize, an Irish sloop called the Antelope, and sail back to England. This latter group includes forced men desperate to be free, men like Bridstock Weaver's friend, Henry Treehill, but it also includes a number of hardened pirates, such as William Ingram and Thomas Lawrence Jones, who are also keen to get out whilst they still can, and think their best chance is returning to Britain. Fenn's decision in this moment, after the capture of the Antelope, to offload a pretty large portion of his crew is a surprising move. 
Considering how contentious the environment had become and how conscious Fenn must have been that every single man departing on the antelope could then be a witness against him in a subsequent trial, right? That he was releasing effectively people who could later condemn him. So it is a really interesting moment. And I think one that speaks to the sort of complexity of forces that are working on Fenn, on Weaver and on Anstis during this period as piracy really enters into its terminal phase where it is no longer really possible to conceive of a way out of piracy that isn't fraught with intense danger. And everyone is thinking about that. Everyone is maneuvering inside a space that feels as if it is constricting endlessly. As the antelope sets sail, following in Bridstock Weaver's footsteps, whatever risks these pirates will face in Britain, it is likely better than just staying put and waiting for trouble to find them. And as Anstis and Fenn are about to find out, trouble is indeed sailing their way. The Royal Navy is closing in again. And this time, they won't be so lucky. It's May 1723. A bright spring afternoon in Bristol, England. A row of white, newly built Georgian townhouses gleam brightly in the sun, and the sound of hooves and carriage wheels echo off cobbled streets. Inside his study, Thomas Smith is disturbed from his afternoon tea by a timid knock at the door. His housekeeper anxiously informs him that a rather strange-looking visitor is downstairs, begging to speak with him. Apologizing, she explains that she tried to shoo away the wretched-looking man. But the stranger seems determined and claims to know Mr. Smith personally. Irritated, Thomas Smith asks for the caller's name, and on hearing it, nearly drops the fine china teacup from his hand. Rushing downstairs to the front door, he can hardly believe his eyes. Stood before him, bearded and bedraggled, barely recognizable, is Bridstock Weaver, his old friend. His friend who had disappeared nearly three years ago and who he'd nearly given up hope of seeing again. Weaver is overwhelmed with relief and happiness. He collapses into his friend's open arms. His long voyage is finally over. Smith would later report that Weaver came to him in a very ragged condition, and that he eventually related the incredible tale of how he had been taken by the pirates and had made his escape from them. Whilst not the whole truth, it's the story Weaver intends to stick to. He has little other choice. Why does Weaver return to Bristol? He has family there. He has friends there. It's not easy for him to go to some distant port where no one knows him. Basically, he gets off his ship in Falmouth and has to beg for food and walk to Bristol, right? Like he's not coming back from his pirating career flush with cash at all. And so eventually you have to ask yourself, well, how am I gonna live? I can't just spend my time tramping the roads. Over the coming months, Bridstock Weaver calls on various friends and associates, 
he's lent money to buy clothes and given lodging at a local inn. Day by day, he recovers himself, before eventually summoning the courage to return to his family in Herefordshire. One can only imagine the surprise and delight he's met with by his mother and siblings. Sadly, he discovers his father Edmund died in his absence. But he also discovers that he has inherited a portion of the family's estate. After a few weeks, he returns to Bristol, looking more like the rural gentleman of old. As the months pass, he walks openly about the town, settles some debts, catches up with old friends, and otherwise enjoys being a free man once more. But this vision of freedom is about to be rudely and violently shattered. Perhaps in his heart, it's something Weaver has been expecting all along. After all, Bristol is a hive of maritime activity. It's only a matter of time until he runs into someone who knows his secret. It does speak to Weaver's dogged hope that he can escape the consequences of his actions that he ultimately does return to England and makes a pretty risky decision to sort of reside in the vicinity of Bristol, which is a place where many of the people that he probably encountered on the high seas could have seen him. The community of mariners out on the Atlantic is a community where many people know each other and, you know, they congregate in the same sorts of taverns. So, you know, it's interesting that he hoped that he could somehow sort of just quietly slide back into Bristol and, and just sort of spend the rest of his days in peace. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Meanwhile, back in the Caribbean, fortunes aren't improving for Weaver's former associates under Thomas Anstis and John Fenn. Still on the island of Tobago, during the final process of splitting up the company, the pirates are once again tracked down by the Royal Navy. Thomas Anstis supervises the final preparations to sail, but crew, cargo, and cannons are still strewn across the shore when cries of alarm go up. 
Sail ho, man o' war! With the king's colours blazing above the mast, a British warship hoves into view. It's the 36-gun frigate HMS Winchelsea. The pirates are suddenly thrown into chaos. Thomas Anstis is already aboard the Good Fortune, preparing for departure. Without hesitating, he gives the order to cut the cables and man the oars. The men aboard must once again row for their lives. As the Good Fortune pulls away, the men abandoned on shore under Captain Fenn look about in horror. The Winchelsea takes up a firing position at the mouth of the harbour, rolls out her long guns, and unleashes a barrage onto the beach. Showered by sand and splinters, the panicked sailors scamper for cover. Fenn gives the order to burn their prize ship still at anchor and retreat into the dense jungle. Their only hope is to wait out their attackers. But these pirates have finally run out of road. And they know it. Every pirate crew that is operating in the 1720s has to be aware that the countermeasures are escalating. And in the case of Anstis, obviously, they are hunted actively. But by this point, with multiple stories of very concerted efforts on the part of both Royal Navy ships and also, crucially, colonial efforts to man ships, everyone is also, yeah, is aware that the net is closing. Having lost track of the good fortune, HMS Winchelsea soon returns, and their commander, Captain Humphrey Orme, is determined not to leave empty-handed. Orme sends out more search parties day after day, until eventually a pirate, half-starved and desperate, emerges from the forests waving a white flag of surrender. Begging for mercy, the pirate offers to help the Navy track down his brethren. Months later, the ten or so surviving pirate marooners, including Captain John Fenn, are tried and executed on Antigua. Despite making another daring escape from a pursuing warship, the end is also at hand for the resourceful Thomas Anstis. In their hasty flight from Tobago, there was no time to reorganize the crew. Anstis's crew is unbalanced, with forced men now outnumbering the pirate loyalists. The writing is on the wall. One night, whilst asleep in his hammock, Thomas Anstis is shot dead, murdered by mutineers. The quartermaster and other senior pirates are quickly overpowered before the rest surrender to the rebels. And with that, the good fortune's long and illustrious pirate career is done. She is navigated to the nearby Dutch colony on Curaçao, where the captive pirates are also tried and hanged. So there are so many pressures building up collectively and individually in these crews. And it's one of the things I think that we underrate when we think about why piracy really comes to such a sort of disastrous, but also quite abrupt end in the mid-1720s, which is that it just becomes almost impossible 
to maintain a crew under those conditions. Crews are being pulled apart by various forces from without. And at the same time, they are trying to hold things together by pulling people back in. And in doing that, they are obviously, you know, really creating a lot of tension that at some point is going to come to a head. And in various ways through the 1720s, we see that is a very dangerous and often explosive ending. With Anstis, Fenn, and their crews either now dead or lingering in cells along the Caribbean, it seems those who split off and sailed for England escaped just in the nick of time. But for how long can they escape their fate? It's September 1723. Bristol, England. Weaver is walking the streets with a friend the day his revived fortunes come crashing back down to earth. Idly chatting to his companion, at first he barely notices the man stood in his path. Recognition suddenly dawns on him. A face he's seen before. Weaver stops dead. He grows pale. It's as if he's seen a ghost. In a way, he has. The stranger steps forward, smiling and offering his hand, introducing himself as Captain Joseph Smith, a merchant seaman, and previously master of the Bristol sloop, the Hamilton, a vessel which was taken by pirates in the Bay of Honduras. How do you do, Mr. Weaver? Bridstock Weaver stammers in response as the memory of capturing the Hamilton comes flooding back to him and a tide of nausea rises inside him. Pray, let us go take a bottle together, Captain Smith says, gesturing to the tavern across the road. During the next few hours, Captain Smith makes it plain to Bridstock Weaver that should he want his secret past to stay secret, he'll have to pay for it. Smith demands compensation for the cost of the cargo taken from him. It's blackmail, pure and simple. Now, whether or not he was correct in calculating that Weaver had the money to cover this lost cargo is another matter altogether. But from Weaver's perspective, it's a dilemma. Even if he agrees to Smith's terms, there's no guarantee that Smith won't go and report him in any case. There's no guarantee that he's not going to be instantly double-crossed. Whatever transpired between the two, it seems as if Smith was a key witness in placing Weaver on the Hamilton on that day. And that is really where his serious legal woes begin to accumulate. Because there are other people who knew Weaver, who knew that he had been at sea, who can corroborate this. And he is now in a situation where he has to somehow figure out a way out of a noose, which is waiting for him on the gallows if he cannot somehow square this circle. It's not clear what happens next, but by the end of 1723, either Weaver isn't able to pay Joseph Smith the hush money demanded, or he decides he won't pay it. Perhaps he thinks he can ride out the storm Perhaps he's caught between the fear of public disgrace and the fear of being found guilty in a courtroom. 
in any case. He delays and eventually runs out of time. By the end of winter 1723, fate comes knocking for him in the shape of two sheriff's deputies who have tracked him down, hiding at the home of a friend. In fact, they literally smash through a cellar door and drag poor Bridstock Weaver away. And we know that he had very good friends in Bristol because one of them was willing to allow him to hide in his basement, which is where he was ultimately arrested, right? And, you know, not only did the authorities sort of come knocking on the door, but the wife of his friend actually sort of offered up a series of excuses and tried to sort of prevent them from entering the room, which they just sort of described having to basically bash the door in, at which point they find Weaver behind a locked door down in the cellar. So when your good friend Bridstock Weaver asks whether you are willing to harbor him, a known fugitive accused of piracy, you have to be pretty good friends to agree to that. So I think it kind of speaks to the double-edged sword of returning to Bristol, right? It is where he has allies, but it is also where he has potential enemies. Weaver is held in Bristol jail before being transported to London to await trial. It's here he discovers that he won't be facing his fate alone. The second group of Anstice's pirates who sailed back to England aboard the Antelope have recently been rounded up and are also facing charges of piracy. This group includes Weaver's old associates, Henry Treehill, Thomas Jones, William Ingram, and William Welks. Every man has their own story to tell, and each has the power to condemn or possibly save any one of his crewmates. The story of what is happening on these pirate voyages is often highly contingent on who was captured when and where. And the first person to sort of be captured and brought in is going to be in a position to shape the narrative and the sort of potentially the sort of prosecutorial terrain on which this entire crew is going to be judged. And sometimes that first person was not necessarily the most reliable. These men had friendships and probably rivalries and enemies. So it is significant that Tree Hill and Ingram depart on the Antelope and end up in London first because they are the people who are going to tell this story. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Thomas Lawrence Jones is one pirate, however, who won't face justice, though his testimony will be the best remembered of them all. He is transported to London and held in Marshalsea Prison, 
where he will die of an unspecified illness before he can stand trial. But he lives long enough to share his life story with an author. He gives his own self-serving version of events in an interview with the mysterious Captain Charles Johnson. Modern historians actually know next to nothing about the 18th century writer. The only thing they're sure of is that Charles Johnson was not his real name. Who is Charles Johnson? The sort of the eternal question. Now, the classic answer to that question for a long time, from the 1930s onwards, was that it was Daniel Defoe, right? The great novelist, Daniel Defoe. That has been challenged repeatedly and I think convincingly since the 1980s. I don't know if we will ever fully answer that question. We may just have to accept that Charles Johnson will be an enigma. But in any case, whomever the writer of the general history was, they had an extremely good grasp of a lot of the contemporary affairs that were happening around them. And also, they were a consummate storyteller, right? Someone who wrote extremely compelling characters, interesting events. And I think that's why the text is still popular today, right? And I think one of Johnson's sort of underrated skills was in reconciling some of these contradictory accounts and constructing a very compelling unitary narrative out of what were often fragmentary and incomplete sources and sometimes sources that were in complete contradiction with each other. As useful as Johnson's incredible account of Anstis and Fenn is, as well as that of the great pirate Bart Roberts, it was likely strongly influenced by his interview with Thomas Jones in Marshalsea Prison in 1724. But Johnson's account never once mentions the name Bridstock Weaver, the third man. In fact, Weaver's life literally depends on keeping his name absent from the historical record. Throughout 1724, Bridstock Weaver builds his defense case. He appeals for bail and requests a delay to his hearing to gather evidence. He also starts a letter-writing campaign, summoning witnesses to speak for him. As ever, he intends to do whatever he must to survive. It's May 1725, in London, at the Old Bailey Courthouse. Almost two years after Bridstock Weaver returned to England, he now stands trial on five counts of piracy. He will be tried alongside his co-defendant, William Ingram. His friend Henry Treehill has successfully proven his own innocence and been acquitted, but he returns to court as a key witness in the case. The authorities must balance testimonies and try to pass the truth from increasingly inconsistent accounts. When you look at some of these depositions and these accounts of Ingram, of Thomas Lawrence Jones and Bridstock Weaver, it's clear that the authorities in Britain are trying to disentangle the same dilemma, right? They are trying to figure out who was in the lead, who was calling the shots, and who was, you know, more likely to be following up in the rear. And that could be the difference between life and death. It's near impossible to construct a clear timeline or consistent story. After all, everyone has their own version of events that best serves their own interests. I think everyone is intensely aware of the fact that a pirate ship and a courtroom 
are two life and death situations. And those are both the places where almost all the evidence that we have on hand comes from. And in life and death situations, people are liable to bend the truth or to attempt to place themselves in the least danger possible. I think what we see in Bridstock Weaver's subsequent sort of maneuvers is great evidence of the fact that pirates were themselves quite canny manipulators and observers of legal loopholes and they knew that there was still wiggle room even in this you know very dangerous time weaver has a string of character witnesses in his favor his friends and relatives line up to testify to his good standing and sober character the testimony and evidence given by henry treehill largely supports his own story of being violently forced to join the pirates and made to participate against his will something to be said, I think, for Treehill and Weaver's apparent friendship that I think speaks to perhaps, again, right, we think about pirates at sea, but then when they get back to land and when things turn very hairy for Treehill and Weaver, they kind of stick together, right? Like, so there is a bond between these two gentlemen who met under very strange circumstances at sea, they're thrown together, on a pirate ship, they go on a long, bloody, very dangerous trip. They survive and they get back to Bristol and they kind of stick up for each other in their depositions. Weaver, speaking in his own defense, simply says, I never received any part of the plunder. I did nothing but what I was forced to. I declined being captain of the Good Fortune, but the quartermaster of the Morning Star compelled me to it. What? Weaver did during his voyage is not always clear. We don't know, you know, whether or not over time his attitudes perhaps hardened, right? And his participation perhaps became more enthusiastic. But what we do know is what the witnesses can speak to. And throughout, Weaver is able to point to people who can say he refused a share of the plunder on this occasion. He actually was very kind to prisoners. Weaver was, by all accounts, quite polite, quite amicable. We have the petition that shows that at least at one point he put his signature on a document seeking a way out of his situation. And it is important that someone like Henry Treel, who had been tried and pardoned, and who now could, you know, speak to Weaver's time on a pirate ship as a shipmate, who could say, you know, subsequent to that, that Weaver was not one of these sort of hardened pirates. All in all, Weaver makes a strong case in his defense. But at the end of the day, in spite of all this, the court still must reconcile the fact that Bridstock Weaver spent almost three years participating in piracy. Pirates had ways to try to shepherd reluctant pirates into committed pirates in various ways. So they had constructed a system that, you know, systematically exposed people to more and more sort of criminal danger. On the other hand, there are indisputable facts placed before the court that Bridstock Weaver was on a pirate ship. He participated in the textbook definition of piracy, right? Plunder at sea. He absolutely did those things. Henry Treehill reluctantly admits his friend Weaver was indeed in command of the good fortune. Though he seemed unwilling, 
he could not well refuse it, and that in the 16 months he served under Weaver, we took above 50 ships, and in taking all of which Weaver was present and assisted according to his place. Even if the court believes Weaver's version, the length of his piracy career cannot be overlooked. The authorities would rather see an innocent man hang than let the guilty go free. And whatever else, Weaver is hardly an innocent. On the 27th of May, 1725, both William Ingram and Bridstock Weaver are sentenced to hang. And that's where the story would end, at least for most pirates. But there's a final twist in the tale of Bridstock Weaver. On July 31st, 1725, whilst awaiting his date with the hangman, Weaver receives a letter. For reasons that still remain unclear, he is granted a last-minute reprieve in the form of a royal pardon for his crimes. Undeniably, Britstock Weaver engaged in piracy and was present, boarded ships, captured ships. That is a textbook definition of piracy. So the fact that he managed to survive is extraordinary because he was the captain, right? And he was not a nameless sailor. He couldn't really hide behind a pirate equivalent of just following orders. And it's hard to say, you know, whether he had more sort of help from some, some other quarter and or whether keeping Weaver alive, for lack of a better word, was important to them for other reasons, such as he could potentially serve as a, a very powerful witness against. So he's a curious case. And I think in some ways, maybe Weaver is the exception that proves the rule, right? Very few captains could possibly have expected to go on trial, be convicted, and then subsequently pardoned. There's also some suggestion that perhaps regional legal documents from Bristol never made it to London to be used against him in his trial. In any event, he certainly gets lucky. By all accounts, he continues with a life he must have thought was lost forever. Later, in 1725, he marries a woman called Sarah, and he goes on to have seven children. He will go on to live to the ripe old age of 81, passing out of the world peacefully at home in Herefordshire in 1767. A deserved happy ending for a man who did his best to stick to his moral principles. A man who did whatever he had to, to survive. Or is Bridstock Weavers a tale of a cunning pirate who pillaged and plundered and got away with it all, unpunished? We'll never know for sure. Next time on Real Pirates. The end of the golden age of piracy is at hand. The Atlantic has finally been rid of the pirate menace. Well, more or less. One last reprobate will face trial, both in the legal sense as well as in the court of public opinion. Just as the pirates face extinction, their celebrity reaches a climax. And the man who may prove to be the final judge of how these desperate men are remembered is one who's been there from the beginning. The Puritan preacher and pirate minister, 
Reverend Dr. Cotton Mather. That's next time on Real Pirates. Real Pirates is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser, executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes, developed by Julian Warrow for Parcast, written and produced by McAllister Beckson, sound supervisor Tom Pink, edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer, sound design by Matthias Torres Sole, mix master by Cody Reynolds Shaw, music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley.